Hello and welcome back to A Better World. This is your host, Mitchell J. Rabin, and I'm very glad you're joining us again today. Today we're going to have a very interesting show as I have invited to join us the teacher, student, and uh, author of a book called The Heartfulness Way, that is Joshua Pollock. Very interesting background, and we'll get to that in a moment. I want to just say that, as you all know, we here at Better World kind of go in two directions, oftentimes at the same time. One, cultivating the space of inner ecology, inner health, well-being, physically, mentally, emotionally, and when you wrap it all up together, spiritually. And at the same time, we are always looking then outward so we can take our newfound sensibility, our inner cultivation, and apply it to the outer world, you know, outer ecology, ecosystem, of which we're all part, Mother Nature, Gaia, Pachamama, however one represents the outer world. And maybe the difference isn't as great as we think between inner and outer anyway. That might be something that we explore today in my conversation with Josh Pollack. So a couple of words about Josh. He is, as I said, a heartfulness trainer and practitioner from the United States and is the co-author of The Heartfulness Way. He's an accomplished Western classical violinist who has performed and taught throughout the world, including multiple collaborations with composer A.R. Rahman. Josh is a dedicated spiritual aspirant and is enthusiastic about sharing his passion, which I had a chance to experience directly not that long ago at the Assemblage in New York City this past summer. And I got to appreciate his appreciation of this really beautiful and refined practice. So uh, we'll be bringing him on in just a moment. He has uh, quite a background in music with a Bachelor of Arts degree from Indiana University and two master's degrees from Guildhall School of Music and Drama in London. He now lives in India with his wife and children, and uh, he is traveling around the world speaking with many different people from all walks of life, from we here on the ground to people who are in government as well as in business, who are getting the taste of meditation and the beauty of it and the health-promoting properties of it. And it's been a subject of scientific study now for a good 40 or so years, if not longer, but it has certainly stepped up in its uh, uh, interest to many scientists because of so many kinds of effects that it has on the brain, creating mental coherence, brain coherence, heart coherence, in fact, and uh, people's lives are deeply enriched as a result of the practice. So on that note, I want to just welcome Josh. Thanks so much for joining me today on A Better World. I'm really happy to join you today, and thank you for having me, too. (laughs) You're so welcome. It's truly a pleasure. Excuse me? It's nice to re 
nice to reconnect after uh, our meditation that we had last summer, this past summer. That's right, definitely. That was so sweet. You know, I have over the years, Josh, have interviewed many different uh, spiritual teachers, meditation teachers, many from India, gurus who have come to the United States, uh, and others from China, Japan, and elsewhere, United States. And one of the first questions that comes up, of course, is, well, sort of like in our Jewish uh, heritage um, on the night of Passover, what makes this meditation so different than others, <laughs> as we say? And I would love to hear what you have to say. Um, there is so much in common, and there are also distinctions, and I'd love to hear your uh, comments about this. I think we can understand this in two different ways. We can understand it theoretically, and perhaps that's the best that we can hope to achieve in a setting like this, right, or a radio where I'm describing something. I can tell you mm -hmm. about unique features of heartfulness. But the real way to understand its uniqueness is simply to try it and have the experience of it because I think that experience will be so unique, you know. Yes. So oh, fundamentally, okay. I, I would that that is this is an experiential approach. It's a practical approach, mm. and no matter what your philosophy is or your religion is, it doesn't matter what your religion is. This isn't something which we say, oh, you should do this instead. Whatever you do is okay. Whatever you believe in is okay. But try this practical approach and see what the effect is on you. See what your experience is, and I think. That is the personal experience is the only way to prove something. So really that is my real answer. But mm -hmm. in terms of the features of this approach, yeah, there are definitely things which are unique. Absolutely. Um, I would say I would point to two things. One thing which we call cleaning and the second thing which we call pranahuti or yogic transmission. Okay. Um, so let's go with cleaning first. Okay. Cleaning method is, yeah, so this is something that, um, you know, I was in, I was having a discussion in Delhi two months back with one monk who is very, very well-versed in numerous traditions, numerous religions, numerous contemplative practices. He's really a, a knowledge bank. And I was discussing this cleaning method with him, and he was so shocked to hear about it because in all of his research and lifelong experience, he'd never heard of anything like it before. And what it is, to put it in just regular everyday language, on a daily basis, I think we have so many um, experiences, interactions, and as a result of those, we have so many thoughts and emotions emotional reactions to things that happen. And what happens to those emotions? They, the, the experience ends, but some residue of that emotion remains with us. It goes inside us. It's there in the subconscious lurking there. Mm -hmm. And it affects the way our experience of life. It affects, it weighs down our consciousness. And it also, um, you know, what can often happen is that sometime, sometime in the future, 
something will happen, some similar, will enter into some similar environment, and which will re-trigger that old emotion, which we'll experience all over again. So what ends up happening is that when we have an emotional reaction, we're actually creating a blueprint for our future, a blueprint for our future reactions, our future beliefs, our, our future prejudices even. Okay. Mm-hmm. So when we are reacting now, when we're reacting, not just according to the events in our lives, but according to the, you know, emotions that we've created in the past, that means that we're not entirely responding to the present moment as it is, but through this filter of our own past experiences and emotions. So we can talk about living in the present, but that's not really possible as long as we're living through this uh, you know, conditioning, uh, you know, under this conditioning that's been created in the past. So we have to actually remove that in order to be truly, you know, cognizant uh, of, the, of what the present moment holds. Now, in yogic terminology, this residual emotion, this emotional content of our memories is called samskara, right? It's, these are the impressions that we carry with us, that we form and we carry along with us. So this samskar, so the cleaning method that we have here in this heartfulness way, this cleaning method removes these samskaras, removes this emotional memories, sort of on a mass scale, so that we feel so much lighter. And we, if we do this practice at the end of every single day, it is, you know, you it becomes so palpable, the lightness. You know, you can after a day at the office or, or doing whatever, you know and this heaviness or stresses are there. Mm-hmm. And you sit for a few minutes and you apply this technique, and then all of a sudden you just, at the, you know it's over because it's, I know it's over because all of a sudden like a jolt, this lightness emerges, this joy emerges from within. And I just, you know, you don't have to believe in this whole theory. You just feel the effects is good, whatever sure. it is. You know, so, so this is something that's unique, this cleaning method. And, and another thing is that what I mentioned, the yoga transmission, Pranahuti. Before now, we move into that, that, however, yeah. I'd like to yeah. uh, I, I'd like to just take a look at this because, uh, you know, mm. I have perhaps not the same amount or level that the monk that you spoke with in Delhi has in terms of exposure to mm. and practices inside of numerous mm. traditions, East and West. I began mm. as a young lad, actually, uh, probably yeah. around 14 years old, to tell you the truth. And uh, yeah. now I'm about 107. So that gives you some <laughs> idea. Um, no, um, you, you I only, have you actually... only look 106. Oh, Mike, you are I'm, kind. I'm I now understand something more about this practice, Josh. It both makes you kind and funny, and I like that. Okay. I think that's very healthy. <laughs> but what I wanted to bring up is uh, sort of this fundamental idea that we see across the board, east and west. Uh, virtually, it's an archetype of traditional uh sacred spiritual practices of purification, 
you see it in the Christian, yes. you see it in the Jewish, you see it in the Buddhist, you see it in the yogic, you find it in Vedanta, you find it in the Upanishads, you find it in, mm. well, pretty much wherever you look, there is some idea of purification, and that's the first thing that comes to mind when you say cleaning, and it's a very beautiful and yes. um, foundational idea. Now, in the Indian context, uh, I always look at everything sort of contextually. I think it's healthy. Uh, there's the idea, as you said, of samskara, and there are the I- there's the idea, both yogically and in Buddhist psychology, of the skandhas. These are essentially those, you could say, unconscious or subconscious remnants of our emotions. By the way, what we refer to as both uh, positive and negative uh, you know, there's still a residual of a past experience which is somehow uh, becoming a filter for our current experience, right? That's what you were saying. It it sort of becomes right. a lens through which we look. And by the way, I think that we would agree that's not always a bad thing. In fact, that's just a thing. It's just a reality. And so it then becomes, I guess you could say, incumbent upon us to make sure that those filters that we do have breed more life, beget more life instead of more mm, sadness or more cynicism or pessimism or anger, you know, things of wrath, you know, going in that direction, you know, you want to have a lovely, beautiful life. So the filters you have are not unimportant. But I wanted to bring this up and hear what you have to say about, you know, that these are sort of fundamental to so many practices, at least that I know of. And so I'm still interested in hearing how the heartfulness way cleaning mechanism or what have you is distinct. And it even, by the way, it doesn't even have to be distinct, and it's an utterly beautiful practice in itself. But I'm just kind of hunting around like Sherlock to see if I could... uh, Get the gist. I think, okay, so I think we can talk You're about... You're with me, right? This, uh, yeah, I'm with you. I think we can talk about this, first of all, a practical approach. That it actually sure. happens rather than something that you're believing in, right? Second yes. thing, but most importantly, I think we're talking about the scale. We're talking about the scale, like kind of a mm-hmm. wholesale uh, removal. In fact, not even wholesale removal, but the basic idea is that in our very first session, the very foundation of this whole edifice is is removed. The very foundation of this whole thing, and that means the very first samskara upon which upon which all the other samskaras are built. Because every oh, okay. samskara, you you say so you can't go out and just form a samskara, form an impression out of the blue, a new one. It is based upon a sort of a pre-existing cognit. We have this idea of cognit, sure. right? Like uh, even Swami, Swami Vivekananda used this. C O G N A T E. Yeah, C O G N A T E. That's right. So, like okay. that's the basis of cognition, right? So somebody will, yeah. you know, they'll mention something about you know some subject you studied in school years ago, right? And you say, yeah. do I know this? And you're searching around, do I remember this? And then your mind locates that particular cognate, and you say, oh yeah, I, I get it. I, I hear what they're talking. I understand what they're talking yes. about. See, that mm-hmm. means you have that cognate. Now there's cognition. Or you don't have it, and then there's no cognition. You say, sorry, you have to explain yes. it to me. Right? So that's there, on, you know, that's on there on one level. But now we're talking on the emotional level. We have a 
emotional cognates as well. So if there's some, uh, something within us that resonates, you know, you know, let's say you have, um, you know, you, you're walking down the street one day. I think this example is in the book, actually, you know, and mm-hmm. somebody does so. Maybe somebody insults you or somebody does something that you don't like. And this, now, the ability to react to that, that, we wouldn't react to that unless we already had something in that with, inside ourselves, which was a trigger for that. You know, so, you, so you're not going to create a new impression without having some basis for it already inside you. Right, so this yes. we can trace back and back and back. There's a residual cognate. I think you would say that correct? exactly. So, exactly. So what what is the original one then? You know. So, and according to my teacher Daji, who's of course the co-author of this book, he said it's mm-hmm. fear. So the mm-hmm. sort of the seed of fear, we can say that this is removed in the very first one, and once that is in the very first session, and once that is gone, then the whole structure is bound to collapse, but it takes a little time. But we find ourselves gradually sort of becoming free from the tendencies of thinking, tendencies of emotional patterns, and things like that as, as, as we move through this practice. So I, I think that this is one thing where you just have to try it and see that this is something which mm-hmm. is really working. Try it, you'll like it. <laughs> right? Yeah. Try it, you'll like it. Yeah, yeah but it's true. There's yeah, nothing you know, better than the taste of experience. And also, and also, you know, we're talking about positive filters and negative filters. We really don't <laughs> discriminate. You say all filters, let them go. See, now, of course, we, you know, you, you, I believe in education. This isn't to say that you can't learn things in life. Mm, you know, of course. You know, we, we, we learn things all the time, right? There's a constant learning process. So it isn't as Truly. if we're, we're removing that knowledge, you know. We're, we're just removing, we're not removing our memories. We're not removing our existential memories that such and such a thing happened. But mm-hmm. removing the emotional content of that memory. So you don't have wow. the emotion stored in the past. But you still remember the thing, you know. That's why, you know, people can say, I, I forgive, but I don't forget. <laughs> you don't forget. Yes. But you can right. still forgive. Now, it's possible, of course, we purify ourselves without even the cleaning method. As you say, there are many ways, even through psychology, yes. right? You can go to counseling. Definitely. You can work through some issue. You can forgive the person who wronged you. Like that, this is another way to remove that samskara. Right. Yeah. And in so doing, we purify ourselves because we've lightened our load now. Our consciousness is lighter. So our experience of life is lighter now. So, yeah, there are many ways to purify yourself. But here, you but I'd like to I'd like to, to clarify something. Of this, uh, mm. yeah. If I could ask you, uh, because it's yeah. you know, very interesting and kind of a refined and delicate conversation here uh, when it comes down, not to mention my background is fully in psychology and I work with people and doing counseling for forgiveness and letting go, by the way, and um, like that. And I'm wondering if the idea of attachment fits in here, because to say that you're removing the memory would leave a bit of a void of the past experience. And I don't, it's usually the, the emotion of an experience that that's its, uh, that's its lifeblood, that's its 
body, if you will. And if you, if yeah. let's say that you were in love, and now you know you do the cleaning, and all of a sudden you have a memory of being in love, but you don't remember what it was like to be in love. You know, you're not sure. I'm sure you're not looking for that. But if there's an attachment, however, the attachment could lead to, you know, what might be unhappiness or some kind of psychological aberration or discomfort or stress in the future because that becomes the uh, lens through which you're looking. Is that of any value in this conversation, that idea? That that happens. Yeah, I mean, it's a natural outcome. but But I don't think there's an attempt to remove attachment like that. Okay. You know, okay. you know, there's not there's not an attempt. Let me, you know, let me become unattached to things, to people. There's nothing like that. Okay. Here we understand it. You know that this this idea of renunciation we don't have. Yes, that's so present. Is that part of the practice? Tradition. We don't do that. This renunciation, but okay, renunciation is sort of an inner state where. It, Inwardly, you, you haven't renounced anything, but inwardly you're not attached. But that doesn't yes. mean that you that you aren't interacting in such a loving way with people around you. That you're oh, not sure. giving love, receiving love from family members, wherever you are. That's still there, yes. and you still have, you know, your, you know, you've got your dog and you know your car and whatever your bank account. And yeah, you've got your three-dimensional but, world around you and inside you, yeah. But the attachment and the sort of need for everything like that, that that is something which doesn't remain. So it's an inner state of renunciation. Not something we try for, but a natural outcome of practice, I would say. Because on the other hand, you can find find people, yeah, you can find people in the hills, in the jungles, the sannyasis, have they've outwardly renounced everything, but can we know for sure if inwardly those thoughts and pining for the old life and for the family aren't there? The outward very good point. Very good we, point. Yeah. And so, I would say about that, having known many uh, practitioners mm-hmm. of all different, I guess I could say, mm-hmm. degrees, just because we tend to be mm-hmm. a little. Um, <clears throat> judgmental about things. It's a purely subjective kind of thing. But nonetheless, I think the outer uh, notion of and ritual connected to renunciation, sometimes it has to do with wearing certain clothes or an emblem of some sort, you know, something that kind of distinguishes a renunciate from the rest of the lay population, let's just say. That becomes a powerful reminder. It's almost like wearing a yarmulke that you are being reminded of what's above, you know, the higher state of mind by wearing a physical, you know, a representation of something beyond our ordinary subjective moment-to-moment experience. So, you know, it has its use, and we can never measure how much someone has renounced or detached or what have you, or loved for that matter. But we get a sense of feeling because we can kind of look into each other's uh, natures and souls to some extent for sure. But please go on. 
I think this is leading yeah, us really, to the next point about transmission, actually. Well, I mean, <laughs> Quite naturally. That, that's, that's basically it, you know. <laughs> yeah. There is a, yeah, what can I say? I think that, you know, I mean, of course, there are many rituals and there are many beautiful traditions. But ultimately, if that reminder doesn't come from inside, I don't think anything's really going to help us from outside either. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have to you have to feel that presence inside you. If you feel that presence, oh, you yes. don't need a reminder. So how to so the question yeah. then becomes how to cultivate that experience, inner experience, so that we don't have to rely on artificial means. You know, mm-hmm. how can we make this a very natural and organic process? You know? And here again, this is you're right. It does lead to transmission <laughs> because. I mm-hmm. think yoga transmission does play a role in this, in giving us the experience of something higher than ourselves. Mm-hmm. You know, and that experience itself. Then, the, when you have that experience, then you don't you don't need so many reminders. You don't need so many external signposts. I would say. Yes. You know, yes. this transmission is something which I I didn't know about when I started this. I just went to someone who was. They didn't tell you. I don't think he mentioned it at first. <laughs> I just went and sat with him. He's, this is how to meditate. I said, okay, we'll meditate together. We meditated. It was amazing. It was truly magnificent, special experience for me. I'd meditated a lot before that too, but this was a first. You know, I yeah, know so I was about to ask you if you had. I got the impression that you had. Uh, but there was something yeah. about this, Josh, that, had a different resonance for you. It's very clear. And, and sometimes that happens, you know, immediately. Sometimes it takes a little time. But I think everybody. But for you, everybody, you, it seemed like it. the very first sitting with your teacher, something mm. shifted That's inside right. you in a very positive That's way. That's absolutely correct. The first thing that shifted inside me was before I even sat down, and he told me that it was free. <laughs> that was. Like okay, I'm a student, so I wouldn't have been able to do this yes, otherwise. Exactly. Right. And okay, so poor, then we got out of the poor way. Jewish violinist from the United States. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm just having fun. And, and this guy was also this guy was also an artist from the U.S. This trainer. Oh, okay. See, there's so many trainers. There's so many. There's maybe ten thousand trainers around the world who are all doing this. Of the heartfulness right? way. Yeah. In particular, every, almost oh. every yeah heartfulness everywhere in this. You know, in the U.S. and Canada, oh, Europe, so Africa, India. So it's really been a Asian movement countries. that has so expanded. Mm. Beautiful. Yeah, that's that's correct, and all without you know anybody, you know, anybody paying anything, any advertising. It's happened in a very sort of under the radar type of way over the last hundred years. Mm. Oh, so now beautiful. I found out about it in a very random seeming way too, which is I was just walking down the street. And I started talking to somebody outside a store in Cleveland, Ohio. And mm-hmm. it turned out that that person, we both shared an interest in meditation. That person had recently tried this heartfulness meditation and was telling me about it. And that's how I found out. And, you know, I don't really know so much about it. So go talk to this trainer who was teaching me how. I said, okay. So oh, I went so and met this trainer. So I went and met him. And then he told me briefly how to meditate. And I had this wonderful experience. And he said, come back tomorrow came back the next day. He said, come back tomorrow. I came back the third day. So there, every single day was a different experience. And 
I was trying to, and he gave me a practice to do at home too, an individual practice. And, and then I was wondering what this was all about because the method itself was so simple. It didn't seem like it, there was anything to it to create such an experience for me. And then later I found out, you know, that somebody, or maybe he did, I don't know, somebody mentioned yogic transmission to me. And that this was the reason, that this is something that when you sit with a, with a trainer, that somehow you are receiving this yogic transmission, and then that is the reason that you're having such an experience. So, you know, then I said, oh, okay. Now, what is it anyway? So I think the first time I heard about it, it was described to me um, as divine energy that mm-hmm. is, you know, that we can utilize to sort of transform ourselves. And that definition still stands, of course, but I think it's something more than energy because energy, is, of course, uh, belongs to this physical manifestation. Energy belongs to the creative universe, right? And then mm-hmm. there's another side, the unmanifest. There's something else beyond that, the unmanifest. And that is, you know, what Kabir is referring to in his poetry where he mm-hmm. talks about the sound of the unplucked string. You know, not the sound of the plucked string, but the unplucked string, the unmanifest. Right. The Non-sensorial. Yes. Mm-hmm. Sort of the source, you know. That, yeah. ina- that inactive source, that dormant source. Mm-hmm. And so, in some way, I would say that yoga transmission isn't energy, but Rather, it belongs to that other level, the level of the unmanifest, the level of pure potentiality. And so it affects us at that level, too. Yet, though it affects us at that level, that effect permeates through all the levels of our being, not just at the level of the soul, but at the level of consciousness. And even we can experience it at the level of the body, too. So at all levels, we experience the effects of this transmission. And I think the primary effect is a sort of expansion of consciousness. And that is a very palpable effect, a very tangible effect. We speak about it and we say, what on earth does that mean? Because then you have this experience and you say, oh, this is what it means. And so as a result of experiencing yoga transmission, meditating along with yoga transmission, I think that we're very quickly able to perceive that divine presence within ourselves, rather than something we have to believe in, now it becomes something we experience. So belief becomes redundant. We don't need to believe anymore. Mm-hmm. And having experienced yeah. it, now this, you fall in love with it. And this love for it, you, people talk about, you know, in yogic tradition, people talk about bhakti. Bhakti mm-hmm we can understand now as an inner kind of worship where you found this yes. divine principle within, within, and it's a meditation itself is an act of inner worship in that sense where you just want to be close with that. You develop this intimacy with this, with this tangible presence within and just want to dissolve yourself in it. You know, we want to become one with that. And that's what, that's just what this is all about. That's why we call it yoga, which is means union. Yes. We're seeking that oneness with the essential thing which is within us. And meditation is a tool to accomplish that. And cleaning is how we remove all of those complexities from our consciousness so that we can be wholly 
and, and every level of our being totally focused on that inner presence and, and on uniting with it. So what I hear, Josh, is having met, interviewed, sat at the feet of many teachers. It mm-hmm. actually sounds um, really identical, to tell you the real truth, to mm-hmm. what I have heard over and over again uh, mm-hmm. in meeting with various teachers in sitting in meditation with teachers, both in the United States, across this country, and in India, and China, and Japan, where I have Thailand, where I have had the uh, you know golden opportunity of sitting in meditation, sometimes Zazen, sometimes Buddhist, sometimes Taoist, uh, and certainly yogic. I'm connected to the... Uh, uh, Shivananda tradition and uh, my dear friend Sri Navasan and Swami Parananda, who I have been with, connected to on many different levels for many, many years and teach there too. And I, that's rather scriptural, to tell you the truth. It's uh, Vedantic, which I adore. I, I credit my first uh, awakening experiences to my reading of, well, I should say first the Tao Te Ching, which was kind of tickling my third eye to start with. But that was really my, ripened. That was also my first entryway. Is that so? That's so interesting. Yeah. One of my, my absolute it, favorites. Yes, mine as well. And I remain very much a Taoist as much as uh, I'm anything. Uh, But it was really the Upanishads and understanding, something you were speaking about earlier, of the conditioned mind uh, distinct from the unconditioned or the unmanifest. And that somehow notion was new to me at age 16, and it resonated through to the core of my being and somehow elicited, facilitated, truly a mental transformation that felt entirely somatic at the same time. So I I have profound appreciation and respect for these traditions, the Indian and Chinese, I could say, uh, perhaps more than any. Uh, but at the same time, what I this is what I'm I, I'm coming up with, and I'd love to hear what you have to say about this. It's as though there are I'm gonna why not be funny about it if you can be. Um, thirty one flavors from Baskin Robbins, okay? And there are all of these uh different flavors and colors and aromas and for whatever reason and you've actually outlined some of them when we spoke of the cognates, you know, the predispositions that we have based on I like to look at our uh prenatal state into being birthed and the biases, prejudices, colorations, filters put in place even then. And needless to say, we can go back some steps there from even there to past lives, you know. But without going back too far, um, we recognize that we have these uh, tendencies, as it's so often referred to. And It's not like one is right and one is wrong, but rather they are different, and uh, we are more the different. And so, and it could also be different times in our lives where 
for you at the moment you sat with this particular teacher, Dodgy, you had an experience that was, oh, I feel like I am home. And you've been on that path ever since. And for others, they could have sat at the feet of, you know, Shivananda or Satchitananda or a rabbi from Eastern Europe or what have you, a priest in a local church or a neighbor. It doesn't have to be someone who is considered a uh, so-called spiritual leader or teacher. It could be a comment that someone has made that somehow seared through to and pierced the heart and before you know it. Now, in terms of transmission, that might be a different part of the conversation. But you see where I'm coming from with this when I refer to uh, 31 flavors. Yeah, well, I think, you know, it's like the old statement, the truth is one, the learned speak of it in many ways, of course. That's right. The paths are many, but the truth is one. Right. It's another translation. Yeah. That's right. Yes. So, of course, that's there. Now, you know, it, at a certain point, you know, this example that we sometimes use, it's like uh, climbing a mountain, you know. And if you yes. look at, you have two climbers, each one are on a different side of the mountain. On one side of the mountain, where the first climber is, he's on a cliff. So if you ask him what he sees, he says, I see a cliff. And then he's the other guy, he's it sounds like there's some trees there. He says, I see trees. So they could argue. But then having reached the top, now you can see that the trees and the cliff, they're both part of the same mountain, right? Mm, so beautiful. you go further and further and further up, and then all of a sudden you say, okay, these are actually, it's all one mountain. But there's so many different perspectives. Depending on where you are on that mountain, you'll have a unique perspective of that mountain. And you'll explain it and define it in a different way. So yes. now... The thing is to be able to, so the further you go, the more inclusive you become. You say, yeah, that's true also. <laughs> yeah, this this path, that's also true. You know, you exactly. see you see them all in the sort of, in their interlocking, you know, the truth interlocking, the context, that's the larger right. context. That's the right. Thing. So that's acceptance. Right. Everything is perspective. Is, yeah. 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 And so even that phrase. So, yeah. Uh, that phrase I uh, just uh, was uh, resonating in my mind that uh, the paths are many and the truth is one. Mm. And uh, the rejoinder to that is love thy neighbor as thyself is the common phrase yes. that I know from the Shivananda okay. tradition. Um, and, you know, so again, it's that common bond between all traditions, you know, his Holiness the Dalai Lama said, if you do nothing else in this life, be kind to others. Mm. I think that's beautiful, yeah. you know, and beautiful. we may have more aspiration than that too, but it's nice to know that foundationally that someone of his merit would say, just be kind in a world that is so full of unkindness. Your yeah. thoughts? Of course. Yeah. I mean, yeah. of course, it's true. I mean, there's right. a very basic, uh, you know, some very basic things that we need to do, of course. Yes. And then yes. I think that I think the trick is to always have this attitude of of an explorer, you know, and always mm. move on and see what's next, and not not yes. to be satisfied with okay, now I have this state, I've had this experience, okay, I've had peace, let me just bask in this 
peace. No, but then yes. to have to very become very lucky if you have this, uh, you know, nature where you become bored with that peace. Because mm-hmm. then there's a possibility of moving on and moving on and seeing how far does this go? How far can this path take me also? You know? And yes. what it was always next in this journey towards infinity. Yeah. And yeah. so this is this is the, this, this, is, is, the, the, this is the crux. And uh, one of the other features of uh, this path, which I appreciate, is mm-hmm. its uh, flexibility regarding something as simple as meditation posture, which I uh, garnered from the book uh, that you co-authored, mm-hmm. that there is a kind of an ease with that. Some, as we know, need to sit on a cushion uh, round, and others that are rectangular, and others mm-hmm. <laughs> you know any number of different yeah. uh, uh, aspects. But here, it's be comfortable. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, this is about the body, you know, so everybody is unique. So we can't expect this uniformity. You know, some people can sit like like in cross-legged position, some people can't. But so what? It doesn't matter so much because this is something that we're doing with consciousness. The body shouldn't disturb us, you know. The object here isn't to obtain absolute mastery over the body. Mm -hmm. So we don't need to Right, that's not really the goal. But I would like to bring this... No, no, I was saying the object is something else than that. Well, please say, I'll get to my question in a moment. Please finish that Mm. thought of what is the object from your point of view. I was, you know, I was speaking with with Daji some weeks back. I was in India. Now I'm in New York. And, Mm -hmm. you know, he was just remarking in a very casual way. You know, the ultimate goal is something where if you can grasp it, that means you're there. Mm-hmm. And if you can't, and if, you know, and if you're not there, you won't be able to grasp it. You know, yes. that's number one. And how to, def- therefore, how to define it for those who say, okay, what is the real goal of life? What is the ultimate thing to do, to spend our life? What is the object of the life? So how to define that? And so we were speaking about this. And in the end, he just said in a very simple way, Look, you know, if I think that, you know, the ultimate goal is something where having achieved it, you won't find any need to experience anything else or to aspire for anything else, you know. Until you've reached that, there'll always be some restlessness. There'll always be some restlessness within us. But having achieved that, then it's the end of that restlessness, you know. Yeah. And I don't know. Way, I, I've given so up many, that. Mm. I, I actually don't accept mm. that perspective anymore at all. Uh, Why? I, I'm accustomed to it, but I don't what? really embrace it. The uh, what I mean is, yeah, I, you see, I, I'm really always looking at two things, and this is actually the nature of the next question I'd like to ask you, Josh, which is, in fact, let me remind everyone you are listening to A Better World with Mitchell J. Rabin. We are on every Wednesday at 6 p.m., and we also have a weekly TV show every Monday evening at 7 p.m., and you can get to be part of our community and receive our weekly newsletter for free at 
abetterworld.tv. That's abetterworld.tv. Love to have you be part of all that we're doing. We love that we're reaching people uh, across the planet, in India, by the way, as well as Australia, South Africa, Mexico, and Canada, UK, etc. It's just a real deep pleasure and honor for us to be able to reach Germany. So many people from different walks of life, Japan. And we are speaking today with the author, uh, co-author of The Heartfulness Way, Joshua Pollack, who is in New York briefly, and it's a real pleasure to have him on the show today. We'll have him on A Better World TV very soon as well. So make sure to stay tuned because you've received the newsletter. So, Josh, I'd like to, you know, in um, winding down a bit here, uh, there's still a very kind of salient question I'd like to ask, which has to do with um, using the cultivation, going back to something I spoke of at the very top of the show, the inner cultivation that happens where we become at peace, we harmonize with the source, we go deep in our hearts and we feel compassion. And there's again, by the way, I met you uh, when you were seated with uh, Sharon Salzberg, who does the loving kindness meditation, which is an expression of a Buddhist uh, uh, perspective and tradition that she has been aligned with for many, many years. So there, again, there's this beautiful uh, interface between what you're doing and what she and others are doing. Compassion is sort of the bedrock of the Buddhist uh, worldview. Uh, but I want to take that worldview um, that is in common here and apply it to what we maybe rather uh, roughly referred to as the outside world, the space in which we are really operating for most of our day. And when we look at this outer world, we see in many ways, we could safely say that it is unraveling. Institutions are being challenged everywhere, up and down and sideways. But even more important to me, at least, is that the earth herself, the ecosystem of we, which we are an intimate part, is being challenged and disrupted and uh, aggravated in so many ways by human activity. You know, we have what we call global warming, and it's literally driving people out of their homes in the South Pacific and elsewhere. And so in California right now, people are fleeing and Dozens and dozens of people have died just this past week. That's how serious it really is. So I'd like to ask you, what do you see is our responsibility as people who are very interested in a spiritual life, an awakened life, and our relationship to service to this outside world that we live inside of? Well, one of my teachers once said that our basic, our most minimal responsibility is to leave the world at least as good as we found it. Of course, mm. that's the minimum. That's the minimum. Yeah. It didn't make it any worse. You know, I mean, we can talk about making it better, but really we should not make it any worse. 
it started. <laughs> Let us pray. So, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, and of course, you know, all these things should, all this stuff has to. That, that's now. kind of a minimalist. That's kind of a minimalist yeah. uh, aspiration. But well, we do what we Please can. Go on. I mean, we do. You know, these things have to emerge naturally. You know, compassion, love. It's one thing to act compassionate because I know I should be compassionate. It's another thing where it just emerges without in an automatic way from my heart because it's sure. my nature. Yes. You know? So of course we of course want to make it authentic. We, the inside and outside should match who I am inside, who I am outside. They, there should not be any gap in between those two ultimately. Mm-hmm. So, so that that's what we strive for, you know. If you're working on perfecting your inner self, you know, and now, yes, it's, and then in a very natural way, allowing that to flow outward to make that inner state dynamic manifested, so that all the people around you are also going to benefit from that. It's not just something mm-hmm. for ourselves, you know. It's something for all. And maybe we don't have a huge sphere of influence in our lives. We're not all, you know, you know, presidents and whatever. But in in our own sphere of influence, however limited it may be, the quality should still be there, you know. And so mm-hmm. this is something that we can do. But I think that we can only really do it in in a natural way when we're able to really plunge into the depths of ourselves and discover the presence of that true quality within, which we can then express externally. But only trying to mimic that quality externally, there'll be some imperfection in it, unless we've also discovered the actual compassion, let's say, within ourselves. Yes. You know? We don't want to counterfeit. We want the real thing. Yeah. And I think that when we're able to come into contact with our source, and that becomes the source of all of these things. But of course, we also uh, enter into these many of these states in in various you know these stages in a very def- definite order. You know, here for instance, everyone I think uh, many people are familiar with the concept of chakras, right? Mm-hmm. And of course, there are seven famous ones. But then <laughs> there are yeah. uh, there are many more, and there. Thirteen uh-huh. that we actually consider to be very important, uh-huh. and and it starts. This whole system starts at the level of the heart. So here we're not talking about this heart chakra, you know, but we're saying that this heart chakra isn't just a single chakra, but in fact, sort of a constellation of chakras, of mm-hmm. five chakras, in fact, right there in the chest. Mm-hmm. And each one of them, we start at the first one, which is at the location of the physical heart, right. And then through meditation, through the cleaning, purifying, and also with the help of the, this uh, transmission, we're able to move to the next one, which is on the right side, so the mirror image of the first one. Right? So now we move to the second one, and all of a sudden we realize that this particular chakra, this particular point or plexus, has a unique quality, and that's a quality of peace, of real peace, like an ocean of peace. And as we go further into that, and we go further and further and further into this peaceful state, 
you know, and then, then we experience real peace right there when we're in this condition, in this mm. chakra, this second chakra, and having experienced that. And not just experienced it, but merged this state in the very into the very essence of our being, not just at the physical level, the cellular level, but the real inner level, so that we become identical with it. And of course, becoming identical with it, you no longer perceive it, because now you know you, the I cannot see itself. You are that, so you yes. can't feel that as if it's something separate from yourself, right? So now you've become that, and now the possibility exists. You go to the next level, which is the third, where the condition is of love, right? And then to the fourth, love and craving, and then to, which is number three, and then to the fourth, which is a sort of courage, and also a sort of surrender develops there. And then to the fifth, where there's an immense discriminative ability, Viveka, right? And having crossed this fifth one, we move into the head, sixth, seventh chakras there in the head. Having moved there in the, to the seventh one, actually, in the forehead, that having crossed the, these chakras in the heart region, in the chest region, now we can say that's the point at which this famous state of liberation occurs. Mm-hmm. But there's much, much, much more beyond that. You go through the eighth, through the ninth, where such humility develops, and the tenth, where such um, the tenth they call the sandalwood point, because you know you can the example is given where there's you can there's a forest of sandalwood, and when the breeze blows through it, you can have the experience, the scent, the aroma of that sandalwood. But if you take the sandalwood paste and apply it to your skin, you carry that aroma with you everywhere you go. So in a similar way, the contact with God there at that point is something which is as if your sandalwood paste on your skin. It's just carrying it around with you. And then you further the 11th, the 12th. And this 12th point, which is beyond this uh, famous uh, Sahasra del Kamal chakra, the top of the head, the crown of the head. You go beyond that one. And there, there's a condition which they call Prabhu this condition of absolute contentment, no more craving to go on, no more spiritual aspiration, nothing, nothing, nothing. Mm-hmm. And there, mm-hmm. you would just stay there. Is that you considered about just... a foot above the uh, seventh chakra? Well, you can measure that. Like oh, it's uh, the hovering chakra. over the head where we would see in some it's of not, the uh, Christian no, iconography no. Uh, halo? No, 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 that is... Okay. Uh, if you go about six fingers, if you measure with your fingers, about six fingers beyond the crown. So that is now taking you to the oh. back of the head. Oh, to the back of the head. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So then that's the 12th one. And that's, I mean, but then beyond that, there's another area called the central region. And this is the 13th point. The 13th point is something which is beyond any explanation at all. And which, you see, now you've, you have no more spiritual aspiration at the 12th. You have no more craving. Everything, there's no, ego dies there at the 12th. And mm-hmm. contentment is at its full pitch. So now to go beyond that, you what happens to, how are you going to go beyond that? <laughs> so mm-hmm. then you have to actually, it's almost as if you have to be 
all of your all of the the previous chakras have to be reawakened again in a very 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 short space of time to promote this intense craving and restlessness for the ultimate and it's like a rocket going to space you need to get that escape velocity that escape velocity, that intense escape velocity. And, you know, yes. Daju was telling me, if you miss it, if you don't get it within that seven, you know, within that two or three days, then you can forget about it. <laughs> but then with that energy, then it's possible to go to the 13th, which is very, I don't even know how, I don't know how to talk about it. I don't know what it, we can say that um, a real condition of ignorance develops. You know, a very positive sense. We think ignorance is a terrible thing. But at the lower level, of course, it is. It just means that you have misunderstandings or you're obtuse or you don't have knowledge. But then later on... Or you're ignoring or you're ignoring the facts. You're ignoring exactly, reality. Some kind of denial. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But then later on, when the separation between the, you know, the witness and, and the reality itself... Is, is removed, then the idea of reality itself becomes a bar to reality. Yeah. So this thought, the very subtle thought of reality, the very subtle thought of God, even, As separate. Is, becomes is the, the wall between you. So this absolute state of ignorance sort of has to develop eventually. Well, that's one this is a very, peculiar yeah. use of the word, but um, I understand the point is that there needs to be truly all united, one united field without even, as uh, one of my teachers, Mr. Gurdjieff, said, not even a thin thought between you and reality. It is truly one and that allows you exactly. to that's exactly march it. to the highest drummer. Yeah, that's what it is. Yeah. Well, listen, I want to just thank you so much. You really walked us through to the 13th level there, and I think it's beautiful. I so appreciate it, but you've you timed it well because we're just about fully out of time here. So uh, that was well well orchestrated. Josh, I want to thank you so much for your book and for your training and for your commitment to helping people awaken to their inner mm-hmm. heart, and actually I should say all five. And I think it's a beautiful work. And I just thank you again for being on the yeah, show it's today. It's such a pleasure speaking with you. your knowledge. Pleasure. Well, thank you so much. My pleasure. Sure. Thanks again. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye now. Joshua Pollack, the co-author of The Heartfulness Way, I was so pleased to hear that this under-the-radar movement, if you will, has spread so there are literally thousands of teachers, of trainers, as he used the word, across the world that are just uh, holding the hands of the students and uh, teaching them the simple basics of this beautiful practice. And uh, from my point of view, the more people that are in a quieter state is creating greater coherence on the planet, and that allows for better decision-making and a better life 
and more maturity, emotional, psychological, physical, is all spiritual maturity. And that allows us to walk lightly on the earth and show her the respect, you know, that uh, she so deserves and uh, she's been so abused. I mean, if you just think about abusing one's own habitat, you know, not cleaning one's own home. And so the home occurs both on the outside that we need a shelter on top of our heads, a roof, and we have a roof on top of our bodies, our literal skull. And Josh was uh, very eloquent about talking about how to work with our inner chakras and um, creating our body as a beautiful home. But we've got many of them, and I think we need to really honor all of that and honor civil society and make sure it's civil. And I see this as a way of really going about that meditation practices of all sorts. Tai Chi Chuan, contemplation of nature itself with your eyes wide open, looking at a tree, beholding an animal, a flower. These are all parts of creating a deeper relationship, a more sensitized relationship with oneself as well as with the so-called outside world. And I know in the experiences that I've had, I can safely say that that is another barrier that is broken through. This idea of inner and outer is wholly relative, and one sees it all as one, that there ceases to be an actual inner and outer as we usually conceive it. So uh, not to get too heady with you, I just wanted to bring that point up as we uh, say goodbye for today's show. I want to just thank you all for listening in, and I love hearing from you. Please send your comments and suggestions and the like to me at mjr at abetterworld.net. That's mjr at abetterworld.net. And please know we have a series of different kinds of services and products, all designed for inner and outer ecology, from physical and mental health to coaching and counseling and biofeedback and balancing of energy. We have a series of different systems uh, that people use, including family and couples counseling, because we live so much in our relationships, our lives pivot on our relationships with each other. And how do I say, this is what creates a better world. So thanks again for joining. Remember, we are also a nonprofit and we appreciate any uh, commitment of donation. It helps us stay alive and thrive on the air and broadcast these kinds of shows to you all. I want to thank you again. I want to thank Josh Pollock for his good work, and I look forward to seeing you all.